Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, July 27th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Republicans in the Senate are debating the details of a new stimulus bill that an ailing American economy badly needs. Well, not debating so much as dithering and dickering. Actually, their dickering has led to dithering. That is the proper chronological sequence. Dithering, meaning delay. Dickering, meaning dispute. So the delayed debate, intradivisional dithering, has led to a disputatious dickering that characterizes the dissensus among a diversity of Republicans. If I were to give them a letter grade, it would be a D. One big issue that the Republicans clearly feel they have public support on is they mustn't be overly generous. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin put it in somewhat bloodless terms on Fox News Sunday. We want to make sure with the expiring unemployment insurance, we have the technical fix so people don't get paid more to stay home than they do to work. Without that snoozer of a phrase, the technical fix, Ted Cruz argued pretty much the same point on Face the Nation. And I'll tell you, I've spoken to small business owners all over the state of Texas who are trying to reopen and they're calling their their waiters and waitresses, they're calling their busboys, and they won't come back. And of course they won't come back because the federal government is paying, in some instances, twice as much money to stay home. Apparently all small businesses in Texas are restaurants. Either that or the busboys are actual boys who drive buses and without them, bakers and haberdashers can't get to their bakeries and haberdasheries. Also, I don't know, maybe Senator Cruz, waiters, waitresses, busboys don't want to return to bars and restaurants in Texas for some reason other than they're getting paid to stay home. They also get coronavirus a lot less if they don't go into bars and restaurants in the hotspot state of Texas. But the serious point to make is that Cruz and Mnuchin are articulating a position which they think appeals to most people. And you know what? I think they're right. But that also may explain why America can be a very stingy, quite punitive place that lacks the ability to fundamentally transform its economy. Yes, of course, in principle, paying someone not to work is poor policy. But to say so does, of course, give you the whiff of the Puritan scold. But there are exceptions to when you might want to err on the side of, okay, we're a little generous. Exceptions like it being the time of great economic crisis. Or how about this, when to properly and precisely calculate and administer exactly who shall and shan't be the beneficiary of government largesse, when that all takes so much time that the entire economy shuts to a halt as you perform those calculations, maybe it's better just to give the $600. I mean, an NPR investigation found that pursuing Mnuchin's deal, where beneficiaries would only get 70% of their wages prior to the pandemic, means that the states would take months to process payments. In fact, the Department of Labor told Congress in May that it strongly opposed the technical fix because it would be, quote, exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to implement. So yeah, it does offend something in most people 
to pay their fellow citizens more than their fellow citizens would have earned had they only worked. But still, that can be true. And it can also be true that it will hurt all taxpayers and all citizens because being extra fine and particular about who does and doesn't get money crashes the overall economy or crash the economy more than the economy is currently crashed. You know, some guy right now is driving to his job, grousing as he commutes in each morning saying, goddamn layabouts, Ah, they got it so good, they get $600 a week. I only get $800 a week and I got to put in actual effort. Yes, well, if those people getting the $600 did not get the $600, they maybe wouldn't have enough money to spend at your job and then your $800 a week job would disappear. This, what I'm talking about here, the stinginess, differs by region, the South, very parsimonious, the upper Midwest, the Northeast being a little less stingy. But by and large, Americans are are obsessed with the idea of no one getting one over on anyone else, to the point where many of us would rather deny 100 people their needed benefits than to face 10 people getting ill-gotten benefits. And we really aren't great at defining needed in the phrase needed benefits either. I don't know what the proper acceptable ratio is, how many people will cheat you for you to say this government program isn't worth it, right? I would put the number, oh, definitely in the double digits, probably well into the double digits before I say, you know, 20 or 30% of the people benefiting from this program shouldn't be or don't deserve to be in real life if waste is documented or said to be documented in like 5% of the cases, that's when the public turns against the program. But then did you hear the words I was using? People who deserve or don't deserve these benefits. How about this as a thought experiment for America to undergo for a little while? If we entirely remove the word and concept of deserve from the political discourse, I think we might have better outcomes. I don't mean we'd be better people or more or less generous or moral. I mean, literally, the economic outcomes that we would all agree with in the abstract would be better. Things like income mobility, not having huge wealth disparity, having living wages, having a functional safety net that doesn't also double as a lifestyle. Just eliminate deserve. I think we should take into account need. Need is important. Need is a lot better than deserve. And I also don't propose scrapping afford. I believe in afford to some extent, less than Rand Paul believes in afford more than Stephanie Kelton does. But making these choices without thinking of the concept of deserve, I think that might well give rise to an economy that's more functional for everyone. Don't we need that? On the show today, the Miami Marlins came into the season about to set a franchise record for fewest losses. They found a new way to lead the league. For those of you scoring at home, it's a 6-4-3 COVID-19 inning ending double play. But first, Zephyr Teachout is a law professor, a political campaigner. Bernie Sanders, for one, Howard Dean, when I first became aware of her. But her campaigns are also for herself. She's run for governor of New York and AG in the House of Representatives, came pretty close to that. But she has never taken her eye off the big issues of government corruption, open communication, and corporate manipulation. The last one is the subject of her new book, Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money, Zephyr Teachout, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. 
And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Zephyr Teachout is an attorney and author, a professor of law at Fordham University. She is out with a new book, and I will tell you the title in a second, but I found it funny that the reference to her previous book, where she was on the gist to talk about it, came in this form. Zephyr Teachout is author of American Corruption. Actually, she's not the author of of American Corruption. Other plutocrats are. She was against it. So, So as to not create... An ambiguous title the next time, Zephyr Teachout's new book is called Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. Thanks for coming on again, Zephyr. Oh, I'm so excited to be on again. Great to talk to you. So you've taken a populist turn, and I can, I can sense that because of the M is not T-H-E-M, it's apostrophe M. You're now a woman of the people. Well, one of the things that I think, I mean, uh, we'll talk more about some of the technical parts of the book, but one of the horrible things that has happened with antitrust and anti-monopoly is that a bunch of economists, academics, well-funded Robert Bork-style thinkers really basically started to tell uh, the American people that they had no business talking about antitrust or anti-monopoly, that this is not, this is a technical uh, issue for highly trained economists. Uh, get your nose out of here. And and one of the things that I care the most about is letting people know that they have complete authority to demand a new antitrust era, to demand things being broken up. They don't have to know all the details of uh, particular economic models in order to say, hey, Amazon and Monsanto have way too much power and it's a problem. Yeah, and you write Amazon, Google, Facebook, Monsanto, AT&T, Verizon, Walmart, Pfizer, Comcast, and CVS, quote, represent a new political phenomenon, a 21st century form of centralized authoritarian government. Okay, why aren't they just, say, robber barons who want to rob as opposed to want to rule? Because that's what a government does as opposed to capitalists. Yeah, that's right. Well, think about Facebook or Amazon. I mean, if you're a seller in uh, America today and you want to get your goods to market, if you're a seller of consumer goods, you basically have to go to Amazon. You don't have a choice. You can't opt out unless you have happen to have a trust fund and don't plan to make any money. And so uh, Amazon then becomes the regulator, basically regulating how you are treated, how well you uh, show up in search results when people are looking for shoes. And there's a scope of power 
that they have over people's lives, making decisions, directing who wins and loses, or when it comes to Facebook, the amount of power that Facebook has over a media and deciding who the winners or losers, winners and losers are in media, that is beyond just being a participant in the market and actually comes to be a kind of governing power. And I don't think that there's a easy, precise line that divides the two. But I don't think there's any doubt that Monsanto and, and, and Facebook and Google are on the other side of that line, that they are not inside the market, but controlling the market. And that's the real line that, um, the line that I take. And by the way, this is part of a long American tradition of thinking of monopoly power as governmental power and as a rival form of, of government that really threatens democracy. It's an idea that was popular for most of American history and then faded out of view in the 1980s with the Reagan revolution. So the argument you just made about Amazon, which I think is accurate, I do recall 12, 15 years ago, the same argument being made about Walmart. They have such power as a retailer. They can, they have such, they have such monopsony power, they could set prices. And I think that was true and Walmart's still on the list. But doesn't the presence of Amazon argue that even such world-changing power can be threatened? In fact, it was in the two companies we're talking about right here. Well, uh, no, but I first want to just give people a sense of what this means, the scope of the power. One of the examples that was often used with Walmart is that Walmart could tell Coca-Cola what sweetener to use in its recipe or, or threaten to take it and put it in, demote its shelf space. And basically that Walmart, because of its position, like Amazon, because of its position, has the ability to demand in its contracts with sellers a huge amount of transparency into their businesses and then control uh, what those businesses do. So I see it more like Amazon and these other new monopolists saw one, you know, if you, uh, if you analogize it to the, the mafia, saw one crime family doing well and said, let's get in on that. And in fact, you see Amazon really studying the pathologies that, that Walmart uh, did a great job of, of um, pioneering and building on top of them. So now, now that we have uh, multiple crime families, it doesn't make it a better system. It makes it a more dangerous one. And, I, and what I see is that more uh, and more our government is a shared government between uh, elected officials and a relatively small number of big companies and then uh, financiers behind them. Would you admit, though, that there is a certain genius uh, behind some of these methods, that the Google algorithm is really smart and really good, and whatever they do with it aside, they deserve to have some success, some measure of success, based on the fact that they've, I don't know, uh, delivered search, delivered that to consumers in a way that consumers really like. They're not tricked into liking. It really helps their life. The same with what Walmart was doing in terms of uh, the efficiency of uh, the supply chain and the same that Amazon even perfected what Walmart did. It's not just, in some of these cases, I think these aren't even quality products. They've just learned to uh, capture the market. But with other cases, maybe the tech ones, there really is uh, some genius, some benefit to the consumer and some success should be allowed. Well, I, I think we got to separate out two different things. Um, one is a lot of innovation is innovation in monopolization, and, and you referred to that. But the other, and maybe I'll use the Uber example, is that a lot of times we look at companies like Uber and praise them for technological advances that really Uber shouldn't get credit for. In fact, the ideas that 
Uber really pushed in terms of being able to not have to hail a taxi, but push a button and have a taxi come, were already well in the works. And most of what Uber did had to do with uh, monopolizing markets and law breaking. And I think that there's a, 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 a fiction out there that we can't have nice things unless monopolies provide it to us. And that's just not true. You know, th- there's an ongoing debate that's 100 years old about which is more innovative, systems that are top-down or systems that are decentralized. I fall on the decentralized side. So we don't know what incredible innovations might have happened if Amazon, Facebook, and Google weren't in the catch-and-kill business where they make sure that they um, smother any innovators who come up to challenge their power. And in, in fact, it, and it's, it's hard because we don't have those innovations, but I'll tell you, I'd rather have thousands of people all pushing their imaginative capacity in different companies than relying on you know, Sheryl Sandberg having a, a new idea uh, next month for pushing the limits on our innovation. I think we're going to have more innovation after we break up these companies, not less. And when you look at history, there's a lot of evidence that's exactly what happens. Look at the breakup of AT&T and the incredible flowering that led to. We don't know what the flowering will be after we break up Amazon, but I promise you it's coming. I generally agree with the premise that companies like Amazon and Walmart are good for consumers, but bad for workers, in fact, and probably bad for suppliers, so bad for workers, especially in some of Amazon's practices, it far outweighs the benefit to consumers. But couldn't we, I mean, we could try to break up Amazon, but wouldn't an alternative be if there is the political will to wade into a fight with Jeff Bezos, perhaps there would also be the political will to say raise the minimum wage to $23 or to have real union rules. And that would be sort of an end around the some of the most pernicious aspects of a company like Amazon. Yeah, I, I don't see these as either or. In fact, one of the later chapters I get into this, especially since I spend most of my time talking to progressives about how they don't spend enough time taking on power um, and spend almost all their time focusing on um, policies, most of which policies I support, including a significant raise in the minimum wage. And I think that there's often a, a false sense of, of having to choose between uh, better usury laws and breaking up big banks. Well, I would argue that the way to get to better usury laws is have a more stable uh, political environment where power is more decentralized. So you actually have the capacity to demand those usury laws, not just in a one-off moment, but in a continuous way. I, I want to get away from a way of talking about antitrust and anti-monopoly that ignores the human impacts of how humiliating it can be to be uh, subservient in this big chain and not to feel like free enough that you could walk away. And also how paranoid it makes people. I, 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 this is a difficult to prove hypothesis, but I think growing monopolization is part of the growing paranoia in our culture. Because if you are a, I'll just use chicken farmer, Uber driver for now, but we can also say newspaper who relies on Facebook and you suddenly see your numbers drop and you suddenly get paid a lot less or you suddenly get paid a lot more, you start to develop theories about how Uber or Tyson or Facebook is treating you. But they're unprovable theories. You're in the you're in the dark because they are these central forces that can uh, decide your fate. And I think when people's economic life is so precarious and so dependent on a handful of big companies, it's not only you know 
not ideal because it, it represses wages. It actually changes who we are. It makes us more paranoid and fearful and suspicious. And I don't think that's a good thing. So you did run for office. I think we had you on when you were running for the House of Representatives in uh, New York. In 2014, you ran for the Democratic Party nomination for governor. Cuomo won that primary and then he won again. But let's say you had won and you'd have been governor and then this pandemic hits that, uh, let us at least say, doesn't really touch upon your core competencies going in. Is that the kind of challenge that you say there, but for the grace of God? Or do you say, well, as a good leader, I would have found a way to lead the people out of this position? I am very confident that I would have had an amazing staff and amazing people around me. And um, in an incredibly difficult situation, we would have made some pretty different decisions. And the most serious different decisions have to do with um, being willing to take on and actually, you know, increase taxation to deal with some of the incredible tragedies that we are facing in New York State. We need, desperately need money for social services, for education, and then for something that I think the federal government has wholly fallen down on, which is supporting small businesses. And that they are, small businesses are so essential to not just New York City, but to every part of the state. And they are getting clobbered. The wave of oncoming of, of, of bankruptcies that is about to come on is absolutely heartbreaking. And it's bad for those small business owners. It's bad for their employees. It's bad for the communities that rely on them. And unfortunately, at the city and state level, the response has been largely a shrug that there's little we can do because uh, the federal government isn't acting. And that's just not true. I mean, this does relate to my book. Anti-monopolism isn't just a federal issue. It's something that states can do something about. But to do it, you have to be willing to take on some of the wealthiest interests in the country and in the world who live in New York State and raise taxes. And it breaks my heart that New York has not risen to the moment and basically allowed school children and small businesses uh, to suffer when we've had this horrific natural disaster. Zephyr Teachout is a law professor, uh, a lot of things, but now is the author of Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. The name of the book is Break Em Up. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. Baseball. It's the pastoral sport. As spring turns to summer and then to fall, young men shag fly balls and chew on sunflower seeds, the most slowly consumed of seeds, what with the intermouth dehusking involved. We slowly, oh so slowly, move on the dewy outfield grass, as did Urban Shocker, Wee Willie Keeler, and Zach Wheat of your baseball slowly unwinds to present the most timeless of games. All right, season's over. Shut it down. That's it. Pack it all in, folks. All right. Well, maybe not all the way down, but the season's opening day was Friday for the Miami Marlins, and their last game for a while was Sunday. Got a case of the corona. 14 or so Marlins players and staff testing positive, causing a postponement of their game tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. 
also causing a shutdown of the Yankees-Phillies game because the Phillies played the Marlins and the Yankees were due to take up residence in the same clubhouse, what adults call locker room, that the Marlins used and that the Marlins possibly infected over the weekend. Carl Ravitch of ESPN does not speak for baseball. He is just the host of Baseball Tonight. But if the sport could be represented in a single collective voice, it might sound something like this. In retrospect, do you think that there is regret or that there should be regret for Major League Baseball deciding not to go into bubble situations? Well, uh, look, hindsight being 2020, I'm sure they wished that the bubble scenario would have worked out. Hindsight. Hind goddamn sight. There is nearsighted and farsighted. What's hindsighted? Is that the condition where you're blind to what everyone else can see, and yet in retrospect you say, oh, that's what everyone was talking about? Let's have an unquarantined workspace in a hot spot with, at best, very loose restrictions on the comings and goings of hundreds of personnel. Hindsight. That's hindsight. Had the other leagues, the MLS, the NBA, the WNBA, the NHL decide, well, we have to contain the players, quarantining them, and then establishing pretty strict bubbles. How did they possibly see that this was the only way that could possibly make it work? Was it far sight? Was it second sight? Was it the sight of the three-eyed raven? No, no. They actually looked at the data around them and said a non-bubble is the only chance to make this work. Baseball decided something different. And three days in, you got one team down, two games postponed, and an entire league waiting and worrying. Hey, maybe we were bound to have some snafu somewhere along the season. Just really bad luck had happened within the first three days. Or maybe this had no real chance of working. Today, I happen to see the least relevant question in the history of sports posed on ESPN. Can the Marlins-Orioles game be rescheduled? For God's sake, I hope not. Now, if you're not a Major League Baseball fan, you might not realize the Marlins and Orioles combined for 213 losses last year. Of course, if you are a Major League Baseball fan, you might not be that up on the Marlins or Orioles because you are, of course, a Major League Baseball fan. I actually did want baseball back this year. I didn't realize it or how much I wanted it back until it started happening. And for three games, I got baseball. In the case of the Dodgers and Giants, four games. I was interested. As a fan of the Mets... I was thrilled when Uranus Cespedes provided the only run in the Mets opener with a solo blast from his mighty bat. This after being away from the game for two years, one with injuries to both heels, and then experiencing a new injury, he was hurt on his farm in an incident involving a wild boar. When this fact was announced by Mets play-by-play man Gary Cohn, his broadcast partner Ron Darling remarked, that sounds like this one show I binge-watched on Netflix during quarantine. I love the delightful repartee of a snappy Major League booth, which is why I thought, at the risk of re-traumatizing Cespedes, it bore repeating. I was eager to see how many whiffs Garrett Cole could collect if Mookie Betts would lap Mookie Wilson and Mookie Blaylock on the all-time informal Mookie meter I've been sponsoring, and also how many leadoff men would get on in every Cubs game, thus prompting Binny's Beverage Depot to pledge $100 per occurrence. I was rooting for baseball. I loved the gameplay, the airsats crowd noise, the stupid cardboard cutouts in the stands, as if batters were vaudevillians in 1915 playing before a crowd scene painted onto the back wall. I loved how, other than those overeager Dodgers and Giants, which played four games, every team this year went 
two and one or one and two. So everyone's a winner or just one game under 500. I think I love baseball more than the organizers of baseball loved it. I mean, they seem to just wish away the pandemic. They chose to try to conduct business outside a bubble and with only a tangential relationship to reality. I'm using the past tense because while I think there will be some more games, I also foresee more outbreaks. And having 30 major league teams traverse the country, interacting with lots of other citizens in the most COVID-infected country on earth doesn't seem like a viable long-term strategy. Carl Ravitch, what might the eulogy for this season be? I think that they're going to look back on it and um, you know, hope that none of these COVID cases are serious, God willing, that nothing significant uh, happens to a particular player or any member that was uh, exposed, uh, that they tried. Oh, they tried, but just barely. And that's it for today's show. And a Brewer's victory gives you instant gratification. But no one can give you instant results like Daniel Schrader's Medical MD Clinic. Just drive and get swabbed and let just producer Daniel Schrader test your sinuses for coronavirus. Bring your spouse to make every throat swab a doubleheader. Today's game also brought to you by Margaret Kelly, producer and namesake of Margaret Kelly Hospital and Rhinovirus Center. Just as no pitcher wants to operate on short rest and no batter wants to hit into a DP, no surgeon at Margaret Kelly Hospital wants to operate with a shortage of PPE. That's why our board-certified staff always has a full supply of personal protective equipment for all your hospitalization needs. We're also brought to you by Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, who reminds you that in baseball, a reliever riding a hot streak will never cough up the lead. But if you're coughing, running a fever, and need relief, you might want to put in a call to the bullpen or your local physician or drive-in clinic. Have a large family gathering or conference on the schedule? Just take a rain check, and that way, you're safe. The gist may not be reproduced or retransmitted in any form, and the accounts and descriptions of this podcast may not be disseminated without express written, inferred verbal, or boldly hinted at interpretive dance consent. Oom pru de pru du pru, and thanks for listening.